Welcome to Discover Joyous Love with Anita DeFrancesco as your host. This is a hybrid of topics under the subjects of mindfulness, sexuality, and relationships. So this is Discover Joyous Love again. We're back with you, and this is episode number 45. Today I have uh, an interesting guest with me, Dan Harari. Harry? How would I say that, Dan? Harari. 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 Dan Harari, who is the author, an author of, of several books, but the book we're speaking about today is called Carrots, True Confessions of a Hollywood Sex Addict. And I find this topic to be very interesting with everything going on today. People have a mis- misunderstanding about what addiction is. People think a lot of the time that it's drugs or alcohol, but there are many types of addictions. And Dan is going to talk to us about his experience uh, as a Holly, as a Hollywood, you know, sex addict and what that all came about. So Dan, welcome to the show. Tell me about yourself, where you have come from, what you do. Let's start there. Intro yourself. Thanks. Thanks for having me on. Uh, My name is Dan Harari, rhymes with Ferrari. That's how I remember how to say my last name. Um, I grew up in New Jersey, in Asbury Park, New Jersey, the Jersey Shore. And, uh, my, I'll just jump a little bit. My, I wrote a book that came out in June this year called Flirting with Fame. And that's about my many years working with celebrities. I'm a, I'm a Hollywood publicist. And uh, I've been working in Hollywood as a publicist for 40 years. But in high school, when I was growing up in Asbury Park, I worked at a rock concert hall called the Sunshine Inn. I had really long hair. I played the drums. You can probably see my drums a little bit behind and I worked with I worked with Bruce Springsteen before he was famous in 1973. So I had a very interesting childhood. My childhood revolved around rock music. It really did. You know, I was a drummer from the age of 10 and I was in bands and I did concerts. I did stage lighting. I did plays. Uh, I worked with Kiss, Bruce Springsteen, Fleetwood Mac, a lot of very big <clears throat> 70s rock bands. And uh, then I went to Boston University for college. I studied communications, graduated from there, worked in Manhattan briefly as a, as a junior publicist at Columbia Pictures Movie Studio on Fifth Avenue, which was a cool job, except I had no money and I couldn't live in Manhattan. I couldn't afford it. So I was commuting from New, New Jersey into Manhattan. And I'll tell you the genesis of my book, Carrots. Um, and we can, we'll get it more into this a little bit later, but when I was in college, uh, there were a couple of girls that I would sort of fall in love with from far. And I couldn't, uh, I couldn't speak to them. I couldn't ask them out on a date. I was just sort of smitten from afar. And one of these girls in particular, she had very long red hair and I never spoke to her the whole school year, but I would just stare at her and like feel like I was in love with her from afar. Anyway, cut to 1980. 1980, I'm on a bus from New Jersey into New York for my job at Columbia Pictures. This is a few years after college. And there was a woman on the bus who was a very attractive, probably a lawyer. She always had a nice suit on with a briefcase. She's probably a lawyer. And I couldn't, I couldn't talk to her. I, and she never sat next to me. I never sat next to her on this bus. But I would just look at her and go, why can't I just talk to this woman? It, it, you know, it just doesn't make sense. So on one of those bus rides, summer of 1980, I swear to you, I heard a voice. A voice spoke into my right ear and said, write a book and call it Carrots. Mm. Voice. Okay, and this is true. Because I've heard the voice a few times. Most recently, the voice told me, I'll never see my father alive again. The last time I saw my father, and then he died a few weeks later. So the voice is a real thing in my head. I don't know if it's an angel. So the, book, or... the book is just recently released. Am I correct? Okay, so I'll tell you the story. So in 1980, I started to write something called carrots. And of course, carrots is a metaphor. You know, it's a carrot on a stick in front of a donkey. What is a carrot on a stick? It's something that's right there, right? You can see it. You can smell it. You can almost taste it. You can almost touch it. It's not quite yours. It's there within your purview. Mm. Not quite yours. 
summer, I wrote a screenplay for a movie called Carrots. And it was a fantasy romantic comedy. And, and I didn't know what I was doing. I, I, I had never written a screenplay. I, I didn't know what I was doing. So I wrote it in 1980. I put it in the drawer. And that's, that's the origin of it. Uh, 29 years later, in 2009, I was representing a beautiful actress model, supermodel named Amber Smith. And we were very good friends. I almost got a book deal for her because she had a remarkable life story. And we had almost had a book deal. And when it fell through, I thought, you know what? I should dig out carrots from my drawer and I should turn carrots, my own story, into a book. Instead of a screenplay, fantasy screenplay, write a reality book. So I wrote Carrots in 2009. I had it professionally edited in 2012. And then for years, Anita, for years and years, I tried to get a literary agent or, or a publisher to, to publish it. So after many, many years, I just gave up. I just gave up, put it back in the drawer. And then last year, I met a publisher who did my first book. The first book is called Flirting with Fame. A Hollywood publicist recalls 50 years of celebrity close encounters. That's my first book. And when I told him about my book, Carrots, he goes, well, I love sex books. Let me read it. So he read my sex book. <laughs> and he sent me a contract. So he uh, published it. And it just came out a few weeks ago. So it's just out recently. Now, the true confessions of a Hollywood sex addict. You started your intro here that you were trying to meet one or two women on the subway and you were you you didn't have either the confidence to go to them or you wanted to meet them or you wanted to be in love. Let's talk about what explain to me what the difference between love addiction and sex addiction and is this what you have the experience and have you seeked out therapy for that over the years? Um, I never, I didn't know I was a sex addict until I was in my fifties and I found a, uh, well, we'll get to, to why I, I did it. I, I found this, I went to a therapist and I said, I told her my story. My, 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 I have a very strange sex story of my life, my whole life. I guess we should start from there. Yeah, because um, see, sex addict and love addict is quite different. They're diff- They're really the same SLAA, you know, the SLAA meetings that are out there, the 12th step. But people don't understand that addiction is more than just drugs and alcohol. And this is a new a new phase for people because a lot of people don't understand it. So I'm, I'm, I'm here hoping they'll read your book and that you can give us some uh, enlightenment on on the love and sex addict. So you went to a therapist and they diagnosed you like this or what happened? Well, I told this woman my life story and that's where I should start with you. And I'll do it very quickly, obviously. Carrots is my entire life from birth as seen through my relationships with women, sex, dating, romance, relationships. When I was born, right after I was born, my mother had a nervous breakdown and ended up in a mental hospital. electroshock therapy. So right off the bat, my mommy, my mommy wasn't there. Mm-hmm. That's how I would venture the world. Between the ages of four and 12, I had a series of traumatic experiences with little girls in the neighborhood. Uh, one of them, I threw a rock at her head. I don't know why I threw a rock at her head and her mother pulled me by the ear and started yelling and screaming at one time I was with a little girl, I was five. She said, let's take off our clothes and hide in the bushes. So she took off her clothes. She's five years old in the bushes. I'm standing there shaking. I had no idea what was happening. And her mother came out, parted the bushes with her hands like Moses parted the Red Sea. And screamed at me and said, you little pervert, what are you doing to my daughter? I'm five years old. I had no idea what was happening. Hmm. Um, third grade I'm in a square dancing class in gym and I'm dancing with this cute little girl I'm having the time of my life super happy everything was great she was happy the gym teacher stops the music grabs my shirt and says how dare you be rough little girls what's wrong with you he goes boys like you we take them to the woodshed and we beat the crap out of them I had no idea what he was talking about 
there were many other traumas in early, early childhood. You know, Danny wants to be happy with a little girl equals something is going to go wrong. So did they label you, your your uh, classmates or or the teachers? Were you labeled? Were you bullied in that sense? And you had no idea of what what was going on? Or I knew when these events were happening. I'll give you another one. I knew when these events were happening, Anita, and I swear to you, I don't know if you believe in the supernatural, but I do, because I've had numerous supernatural experiences in my life. When some of these events were happening, they didn't seem real to me in the moment. They said they seemed, you know, unreal to me in the moment, as though these things going wrong were sort of being orchestrated. I'll give you a good example. Eighth grade, I'm at my very first boy-girl party ever. I'm 14, eighth grade at my house. And all the little boys and girls had seven minutes in heaven. They paired off in couples and they did made out seven minutes in heaven in my garage. In first grade. First grade? Fourth grade. Fourth grade. Four, no, 14. That's about oh, 14. Right. You said you were 14. Okay. For, that was ninth grade then. It was eighth grade. Eighth grade. Okay. So all the little, all my friends were making out, making out seven minutes. Then finally, it was my turn at the very end. I had the, the last girl to go in the, my own garage in my own house to make out for seven minutes. So I go there with this cute little girl. I was smitten with her. We start kissing. I heard music. I actually heard music. My heart was pounding. I was so happy. Everything was great. We were kissing for maybe 20, 30 seconds. And then my friend Alan opened the door and said, Danny, oh my God, Bonnie's father is here. The girl I was kissing, her father showed up to take her home. Okay. So all my friends got seven minutes in heaven. I got 20 seconds in heaven. Hmm. No other parent came. No parent had been called. The party was not over yet. But my girl that I had, her dad came, took her away. I never saw her again. They moved out of town. So I had it, and then I didn't have it. So carrot on a stick. This girl, Bonnie, was the carrot stick. So that's at age 14. So so this, these were the steps to you discovering that you had control. Her father showed up. But what what made you discover i mean that you had some kind of you know you had your mom wasn't there so you weren't raised you were only raised by your dad or were you no, raised she, she was gone for six weeks and my my dad worked so i had my two grandmothers took care of so so what what led you up to believing that you could be someone that has an addiction with love and sex maybe because you know you have a, a loss or a lack somewhere and like people usually have addictions because of some emptiness some falling out in their life some childhood experience so these were just like i, I mean that's kind of it sounds normal that you want to kiss girls you're 14 but continue because i'm i'm curious to know how you got to be the sex addict which is a really um a deep profound addiction to deal with Okay, so those were some of the stories I had with girls <clears throat> early, early in childhood. When I was 12, my best friend, Guy Fred, was 13. He used to steal his father's Playboy magazines, and we would look at them in my attic in my house. And so I'm 12, he's 13. We would look at naked girls, and I'd get hard. And it was exciting because we saw these you know, beautiful, gorgeous women big, huge boobs and Playboy magazines. So one day, after we looked at some magazines, we were outside and he goes, get in the back of your mother's car and lay down. I want you to be my girlfriend. I had no idea what he was talking about. So I laid down on the back of my mother's car. He got on top of me and he humped me. Now we both had clothes, but he was humping me and he had his arms around me and he was sucking my shirt. He goes, I'm sucking your nipples. And he's humping me, and I got hard. I got hard. He got hard, and we both orgasmed in our jeans. He gets off of me, and he goes, "Thanks for the sex," and he walks home. Okay, I'm 12 years old. I'd never had an erection in my life. I'd never had an orgasm in my life. I had no idea what sex was. I had no idea what sperm was. I had no idea about orgasms. I knew nothing. And how did I, you feel after that? Were you afraid? Did that feel normal to you? Were you afraid? Or what kind of a feeling did it leave you with? 
That's, that's a great question. Anger I, or something that hit you later in life as you became an adult? So I never was more confused in my life. I felt like something very shameful had just happened to me. Now, some therapists have said he molested me. And other therapists have said to me, it was normal childhood sexual play. I'm on the fence because he molested me, but, you know, there was no nudity. He didn't put his penis in my mouth. I mean, I guess it was childhood curiosity, but I was, maybe I was never more confused. Okay, so that's the beginning. Now we're going to talk about the sex addiction part. That's, that was so that was the beginning of the the um, the um, the uh, beginning of this kind of dysfunction or this this addiction this part of you that uh, you know the scars the trauma it's traumatic even though it was very innocent that you and this boy or others it's just the beginning of maybe you didn't have um, a lot of time. You know how I don't know how old you are, but in certain generations, they didn't talk to their children about sex and what it was and what to expect. You know, parents or schools. So it, I don't. I think today there there's a lot more education around sex, sexuality, and you know they talk about condoms and different things and disease and transsexual and everything, and and it's really important. But I think in some instances, children are just left. You know. Uh, empty and alone and, and ignorant. There's an ignorance behind it that they don't learn. So go ahead. That was part of the beginning of your journey here, huh? This journey that that was that was the starting point. I'm 66. In 1968, when I got molested, there was no internet. There was no porn on the internet. Uh my parents never ever spoke to me about sex. My friends never talked about sex. My teachers, I didn't have sex ed in school. So in 1968, I get hard and I come in my pants, Anita. And I thought, oh, my God, my mother's going to kill me. I have this big stain in my pants. I, went, I remember I went back in the house and I hid my underwear and my jeans. So my mother wouldn't see that there was a big wet stain on them. Mm. From, that, from that, okay, so I had zero. When I came... I, I didn't know what I literally I thought I peed in my pants. Okay. Talk about zero sexual knowledge. And I mean literally zero. Zero. I knew when you looked at Playboy magazines, your penis sort of feels happy. That's all I knew. I I I like there was a complete disconnect. No one told me ever. No to this day, no one fact mm. tell me my person. So from that point, I said, hmm, well, that was weird what my friend did to me but kind of felt good in my, in my pants. So I started to steal Playboy magazines. You know, Playboy used to come out once a month. And for years, all through high school, I stole Playboy magazines. I would drop, ride my bike after school to the drugstore. I put a magazine under my shirt or under my coat. I'd ride home. And then at night when my parents and my brothers were sleeping, I would lay out all my magazines in my room. Uh, on the floor, I would get naked and my penis would be hard and I would play with myself and look at these beautiful girls and orgasm on onto the magazines. And I'm telling you, I didn't know what it was. I didn't know what it was called. And it went out from 12 to like 14. Anita, I thought I invented something. I actually, I, I really mm. did. I, I thought, I wonder if the world knows about <laughs> Oh, goodness. You were acting out sexually. And of course, you were doing it in a healthy way, but it really wasn't considered healthy in the sense of, you know, that you didn't know what it was and you're thinking you invented something and acting out sexually. And if it because um, sex, sex, um, what is it? Pornography nowadays is a big addiction for men. And uh, this is a big addiction because they get addicted to the digital of you know the whole thing and they lose that contact and they have intimacy issues going into relationships so same but you're 12 to 14 so you're just beginning you know you're you're not ready to ask a, a girl out at that age it was so young and you're in the same generation as me so we didn't really start to really go on dates till we were like 16 or 18 at least I didn't and my generation you're the same as me so um but 
that is interesting that you were baffled. You were like lost. And it's a lot of fear there, huh? I was completely lost. Now, add into the mix, my parents at the time had a lot of sex in the room next to my room. So I would hear my mother and my father or coming. Okay. So, and I knew they were doing sex stuff, but I didn't know what. My mother was very attractive in her day. My mother, all of my mother's friends were blondes with big boobs and all attractive. So from like 15 to 18 now, when some of my friends, my friends started dating Really, my friends started dating and getting laid. They were 17, 18. The usual okay. age, yeah, right. Yeah, right. So from 15 to 18, Anita, I'm looking at the Playboy magazine. I'm hearing my parents having sex in the next room. I'm, then I start fantasizing about my mother's friends because big boobs, like the girls in Playboy. So I, my parents would be having parties and I'd be serving them drinks, you know? And then I'd go in the bathroom and masturbate, thinking about, some of these women at the party in the next room. And, and then it, it came into my head, wow, what if, what if Sally walked into the bathroom and caught me doing this to myself? What would that be like? Would she take off her bra? Would she let me see her breasts? It became an incredibly powerful fantasy of my mom, not my mommy yet, but we'll get to that later, but my mommy's friends, because these were like Playboy girls come to life for me. Mm -hmm. Now, 16 to 18, my best friends are 17, 18. My best friends are dating and having sex. Now, I had long hair. I was a drummer. I was popular. I was a straight A student. I had millions of friends. I was not bullied. I was not anything. I had everything going for me, except when it came to even asking a girl out for a date. I didn't go to my proms. I didn't have a date in high school. Not one. I I, the thought of asking a girl out for a date, I would actually, you know, I'd start shaking because I was flashing back to the traumas of early childhood um, when me and little girls have gotten trouble. Now that I'm in the sexual era in adolescence, to translate my sexual desires to a real girl that I knew in real life, I couldn't do it. I'd rather jerk off to Playboy magazine. Not I'd rather, that's not true. So that was I, part of your addiction beginning right there. That was the addiction beginning. And not just that, that's where for me, and this is still true to this day, fantasy and reality with sex and women split. Split from like 50 magazines to and my mommy's friends to, to fantasize about. That was, so when I came, that was sex. But real girls in school who were liked me, and there were a few in particular who were throwing themselves at me. Right. And I couldn't. My thinking was, there's this one girl named Cheryl who was throwing herself at me for two years. I never kissed her. I never touched her. And I'm thinking, Cheryl's really good looking. She has big boobs. What would she want a loser? What would she want a loser like me? You know, she could get any guy. Why would she want to be with me? I can go home and jerk off to Miss May in my Playboy magazine. Why would I go out on a date with her? I had a complete split, a fantasy and reality. Right. So you were split. And the thing is, I think that the intimacy was an issue for you. No one really, perhaps there wasn't quite the intimacy in the family. And I mean, just everyday intimacy, because relationships and love are not about sex. It turns into acting out when someone can't be intimate with someone they they're they're having an issue like you were afraid to ask these girl the girl out or accept them that they liked you you didn't have enough confidence your esteem you had low self-esteem so you'd rather go home and act out because your self-esteem was low and for you what, what was intimacy what was intimacy you know it, it that intimacy is not sex it's a part of it but intimacy is connecting and bonding and looking in someone's eyes and having a conversation and talking to them and holding their hand or just sitting down eating lunch with them and being intimate in the conversation talking about each other's lives or whatever you're sharing so for you you actually were split you had this split family where did this split come from it had to be something in all the traumas from your upbringing somewhere along in the experiences that you had so go ahead finish tell me about um this okay. is so it had a great impact on your life it sounds like 
right, so we're leaving out three major things during this era, three major things. One, I had incredibly bad acne. Bad acne. Mm. Okay. Not going to help me any, right? Let's talk about self-confidence when, you know, your face looks like a pepperoni pizza. So that, God did, did me no favors with my skin. That's number one. Number two, my mother was a classic narcissist. Oh, there's the problem right there. My mother's life. No, she was a she was a good mother in that. She drove me and my brothers where we needed to go. She bought us clothes, she fed us. You know, but my mom, it wasn't a huggy, kissy, warm. It was, did you do your homework? You know, you need to turn off the TV and go to bed at 10 o'clock. My mother, I don't remember. Now, when I was little, I have home movies. So I know my mom was, was warm when I was a little boy. I, I have home movies. But... Once my littlest brother was born, when I was eight, she became a, like a perfunctory mom. Now, my mom is very gifted. She's a singer. She's an actress. She's a producer of plays. She's a musician. My mother was always singing and dancing. Even at home, she'd be singing and dancing, smoking cigarettes, be on the phone for four hours with her friends at a time. She, I didn't have warm, fuzzy mommy love. I just didn't have, and my two brothers also became sex addicts later in life. So me and my brother and my brother all had a, and it's sad to say, but we all had a disconnect emotionally with my mother. We all, all three of us did. Mm. Yeah. Not her fault. She was molested as a child by her father. Turns out years later, we learned that. I don't blame my mother. I'm just stating the fact. My mother was not a warm and fuzzy woman. All my guy friends, when I go to their houses, their moms were making cookies and, and, and hugging their kids and being warm and funny and friendly and like being trying to be a peer. My mother was always on a stage. Mm. Like literally, literally at, in the theaters, I used to play drums for my mom, some of her plays. But at home, she'd be singing with the records and dancing and smoking and talking and it was me, 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 look well, at me. Look that at me, was look. the way that she expressed herself and channeled through her pain. The projection yeah. part that came through to you three boys, it's, it's sad that it was three boys because if she had a daughter, there might have been a little bit more um, emotion going on exchange because women tend to, are able to kind of get that thing going more so than men. Men have to learn. So in relationship as a Tantra wisdom teacher, you're listening to Discover Joyous Love. I'm your host, Anita DeFrancesco. This is episode 45. And my guest today is Dan Harari. Harari? Harari. Rhymes with Harari. Am I saying it right? Harari? Rhymes with Harari. 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 Right. The Carrots author, True Confessions of a Hollywood Sex Addict. And he's taking us through how the sex addiction began with him, how it impacted his life. And it does come from the matriarch. I have to say that. But in my family, it was the patriarch. It was the father who didn't show the love, who was the narcissist, who was cold and statuesque. And the mother was very emotional. My mother was a singer, a dancer. She would channel all her pain that way from her upbringing. But due to the fact that I was a woman, I was able to get in with that. And you three boys, um, yeah, she was there, but she... It, you know, she she didn't know how to love you. And this had a great impact on your your relationship life with with girls and women uh, in the future. So go ahead. Continue with what you were saying there. Okay. So. The third triple whammy was I had clinical. Hello. Wait a minute. We just. Uh oh, shoot. Hello? Hello? Wait a minute. Hello? Four. four through 14. Are you there? Yeah, for a moment, the uh, screen is frozen. So you're frozen. Can you hear me? There you go. Yeah. All right. So, yeah. So my mother, nervous breakdown when I was born. Traumas with little girls from the age of four to 14. My friend molests me. I'm 12. Um... Acne kicks in, 14, 15. Depression, clinical depression kicks in at 15. Oh, wow. 
It was undiagnosed for 25 years, literally. I'm not trying to be funnier. I wasn't just sad or down or had blues. Every day of my life, you're a loser. You're ugly. You're stupid. Girls don't like you. You're a loser. You're a loser. I heard a tape in my back of my brain. Who said that to you? Your mom? No, no, no. Real. I had a reel-to-reel tape in my brain. Every single day for 25 years. You're ugly. You're stupid. You're a loser. Girls don't like you. You masturbate a lot. You look at your jerk off magazines. So you resorted to all that head noise. And that's what you survived with. The head noise. When I turned 40, I'll jump ahead. When I turned 40, I had a good job. Two children that I loved. I was a lot of friends. I went to a psychiatrist. I said, he goes, why are you here? I said, you know, I'm 40. I make a good living. I have two children that I love very much. My life isn't so bad. I said, I can never smile. I'm never happy. And I'm down on myself every single day of my life. And I told him my whole life story. And he he looked at me and he shakes his head. And he goes, I am so impressed with you. And I said, why? He goes, you've had clinical depression for 25 years. Undiagnosed clinical depression. He goes, I'm amazed what you've accomplished in your life. He goes, you're like a diabetic who never had insulin. Mm. He gave me Prozac. And a week later, that reel-to-reel tape, you're ugly, you're stupid, you're a loser, you jerk off too much. It stopped. It ended, literally ended. Went away. Still gone. Been 26 years. And when I turned 40, my life changed dramatically. That was the year that I became undepressed. And my life changed. They opened a million dollar business. I had women everywhere. My life changed overnight. It it was remarkable. Do you still take the Prozac? Okay, that's a very funny. You should ask me that question. Or you don't have to tell me if you don't want to. I'll tell you. I'm an open. I've been taking Prozac every single day of my life for 26 and a half years. Every single day, right? Last weekend, I tried to. I love phone sex. I still do phone sex. I, I love it. And I had phone sex and I tried to masturbate last Saturday night. And for the first time in my life, I couldn't get hard. I had no feeling in my penis. I had I couldn't get hard. I mm-hmm. couldn't get horny. There was no, there was, between my brain and my penis, utter, complete and total disconnect. Disconnect. Like, like someone had cut an electrical cord. And I thought to myself, I've been on Prozac a really long time. So I stopped taking it four days ago, just as an experiment. And the last few days, my penis is a little bit more, hello, I'm still here. So I'm trying to wean myself off of Prozac. I don't know if that's a good idea, but I would love to get my penis back online. Well, after so many years of taking any of those type of psychiatric drugs, the uh, sexual erectile dysfunction can happen and it's it's normal with depressive drugs and especially as you get older and i don't know if viagra and things of that nature would help you or have you tried that i tried everything viagra used to work like a charm for me worked like a charm for years and years and years worked like a charm i could take literally i could take four or five viagras right now and nothing there'd be nothing at all just absolute zero it stopped working. All those those drugs, I've taken Cialis and Viagra. Well, here's a, here's a question for you. Why would you take it if you're not in a relationship? Are you having sex, sexual relations with just women, friends, casual, or relationship? When was your last relationship? For me, I would take it to get hard to for phone sex or video cam sex with girls on the computer. Okay, okay. So for video cam. Sex with myself. Okay, let's go back in time. I was 25. I moved to California when I was 24. When I was 25, I met my wife. She was 20. Madly in love. We were together 11 years. We had two kids. Every conceivable medical problem that could happen to a woman happened to her in 11 years. She had more surgeries and medical ailments than any 20 people that you could ever think of. Our life was ruled by her medical problems. She had chronic fatigue syndrome on my honeymoon. Okay. I didn't get laid on my honeymoon. Okay. Zero sex. Just that night, she got deathly ill. 
she was in bed for the next six months. Oh. So my, my bad luck with women continued right on into my marriage. The fact that I have two children is a miracle because we didn't have much sex in our marriage. I have two grown children. It's a, and especially my daughter, it's a miracle because I had sex with my wife three times the last year we were together. And the third time was my daughter. So she's a miracle child that she exists. When so was, the thing is, have you and your wife, your wife has been sick, so she hasn't really been sexually active for you. But of course you love her and you had children with her. But was the relationship solely based on sex? But then again, with your past, you would attract someone that the intimacy wasn't there. You would either attract someone like her that had medical, physical issues or someone that just wasn't intimate, like a narcissist, like your mom. Because sometimes we attract people with the patterns living in the trauma body. Like whatever your mom was like, you might attract a woman like that. And you could have attracted a narcissistic woman who was healthy physically, but not available for you intimately in a sexual way at all, not even intimate in any way. So the fact that you attracted this kind of woman, your wife, is is has has a lot to do with the upbringing and the patterns for what we attract in life. And until we work on ourselves, until we start to replenish and undo these patterns, we're able to attract more of what we we actually need. But in your instance, so go ahead. So you, you divorce now? Are you remarried? Or all right. So my wife was not a narcissist at all. Not right. She wasn't, but she had physical issues. And the fact that you didn't, you attracted someone, you're that, in avoidance. Your whole life to me was about avoiding intimacy. And so that's where sexual addiction, I believe, she, comes. She wasn't sick when I met her. She became ill over the years. She wasn't sick. She was the polar opposite of my mother in every, every possible way. But once she started to get sick, my mother even said, you know, you're going to have trouble with this when she gets sick every five minutes there's a debate there if I attracted a sick woman. I, I can't really. Right, was, right. But it's the not, fact that it's a shame that she did get sick and then that just left okay. you alone. Okay, so when I was married, first few years we had sex. It was nice. It was warm, friendly, romantic. It wasn't fucking, you know, it wasn't porn star, you know, real sex. She didn't like oral sex, me doing oral sex on her. I did it once ever. She hated it. Um, anal, I think we did once. She hated it. And then the last years, if I was horny, she'd either say, here's my hand. She would literally say, here's my hand and jerk me off with her hand. Not even, she'd be watching TV. Mm -hmm. Or I'd go in the, in, the, in the garage and masturbate in the garage in private. That was my, that was my marriage. It was, and how'd it was, that make you feel? Did you feel unloved or? No, I just was like, why am I why was I cursed in this manner, God? And mm. that's, carrots to me is a curse. My book is the story of a man who was cursed with women. All right, so now I'm 36. One day my wife says to me, we need to get divorced. I'll take the kids. She goes, Dan, you need to have sex with more women. You didn't have that much sex before me. She goes, we're not in love anymore. We need to go our separate ways. And I started to cry tears of joy. Tears of joy. And I said, thank you. Thank you for my freedom. I was never more elated in my life because my wife and I were roommates. The last three years, we were roommates. Okay, okay. Now I'm 36. I'm single. I have two kids as I see on the weekend. And that's what talk about sex addiction. Now it's like, who am I going to fuck? How am I going to come? Should I go to the strip club and get a lap dance? Should I do phone sex? Should I do the, there's places, they used to be called peep shows, but out here in LA, we call them whack shacks. You can go to this, these places, beautiful women dance naked for you in a room while you masturbate, they'll watch you and they'll talk dirty to you. There's no glass in between, it's, it's a live interaction. So from 36 to 56, mm. I had, I had, many real girlfriends. I had many very attractive call girls, uh, lap dances, phone sex, black shacks, porn. Every day of my life that I wasn't with my kids, I was going to go, I, I said, how am I going to come today? How many times am I going to come today? How am I going to come today? I would revolve, I would plan my 
budget because this stuff costs money. I would plan my budget and my time around what, what kind of orgasm am I going to have this today? I masturbate. So this is from age 36 to 56. That's 20 years. And I spent hundreds of thousands of dollars on, on call girls. Yeah, this addiction can be very expensive. This addiction. And I'll tell you the truth. And this is God's honest truth. <clears throat> the only thing that really bothered me about my sex addiction was the money. Because I had two kids I had to send through college. I supported my ex-wife for 21 years with alimony. Um, I lived large. I had a... I live in Beverly Hills. I had a brand new Mercedes. I was whining and dining women at the most expensive restaurants. Not getting laid by those women necessarily. I would have a date with a beautiful woman and she'll say, you know, call me. And then I'd go home and I'd call a call girl to come over and so I could upset. Mm. So I was, I, you know, remember I told you the fantasy reality? Right, it was, it the was, fantasy and reality. Yes, that was, split. It was interweek from 36 to 56. I really, I had, I had quite a few real girlfriends. A couple of them I wanted to marry. They didn't like my kids. They didn't get along with my kids. Very young at the time. There was a girl I was in love with when I was 40. She goes, if you didn't have kids, Dan, I'd marry you tomorrow. I said, sorry to trouble you. I have two children. What would you like me to do? Hmm. Well, the whole thing, it sounds like with the addiction that you... Um... You were. It was hard for you to be intimate, to truly be intimate with someone, and and the women that you attracted. There were things about you that maybe they didn't accept, like your children or, or other things. Um, but the the fact that you um, you have, you have a, a loss of the greatest thing in the world is being intimate and connecting with from the heart. As a I'm tantra wisdom is my work from the heart. You should take Tantra lessons, take classes. There's plenty of them. I lived in LA 20 years. Um, the uh, heart connection is a big loss. When you just rely on your physical and then you fantasize, you know, you're split. You have, you have a great loss. Have you worked on helping yourself to become more of the heart, more of wanting to connect with someone for real at this time in your life? Because now you're getting into the next, you know, stage of your life and how do you see all that going i mean where how's it going now for you you know with relationships are you well i have the worst luck with women in the history of America. oh my god you do come on i don't believe you wait hold on you haven't read my book yet anita i read I have... some of it but not all but go ahead people who have read my book there are five therapists who have read it. They all said, I've never seen luck like this with a, with anyone. I have remarkably bad luck. That's number one. I would love to be intimate. I've been intimate with a few women. And then we break up or, or they tell me their father hates Jews. Or uh, I lived with a woman who had a cat. And I told her I can't live with a cat. She was, don't worry, you'll be fine. And we were, I was so sick with allergies from the cat. All we did was fight about a cat. I have, I can't become intimate with a woman because I haven't found the women that want to, that are, um, that are palatable. For I've, I've, there's a disconnect. It's from birth. I'm telling you the truth. There's a curse. I was cursed in a past life. Let's jump ahead. Okay. I've been, to, I've been to psychics. I've been to hypnotists. I've been to aura healers. I've been to shamans. Every single person I ever saw that was in the supernatural realm all told me that there was dark energy with me with women. It goes to a past life. I was a murderer in a past life. I was mm. a rapist. I was a killer. I murdered women. I raped. I killed my mother. I killed myself. Um, two, two of one. The first psychic that I ever saw, I was 23. I walk in off the street. She goes, I sit down. She looks at me. She goes, many women are attracted to you, but something goes wrong with each one you meet. Okay. That's I'm age 23. Okay. 10 years ago, I went to a psychic in Hollywood. She goes, you have the luck to find women, but you don't have the luck to keep their love. Okay. These are two completely separate. There's something about my karma. This is karmic. This is yes. Bigger. Yes. 
And, you know, have you done shamanic healing? Because sometimes the shamanic healing can kind of cleanse the uh, the past life. Have you seen past life people and karmic healers? I saw a shaman in Malibu. She told me when I, when I was, she was amazing. She said, when I was born, that my feminine downloads didn't download all the way. It was missed. She said, my feminine download was missing. And then she did like, hiya, hiya, hiya. She was singing and dancing instruments. She blew some kind of powder at me. I think I was hallucinating. (laughs) Oh, gosh. I saw my dead dead grandfather. I saw a deer. Oh, no. And she said, Newt, the Egyptian goddess Newt, just helped me download your feminine. That's what she told me. Oh, no. You got to take Tantra. Take Tantra classes. I drove home from this woman. I was elated. I felt elated. I felt high. Now, she may have blown LSD acid. <laughs> it was hallucinating. Oh, that, no. That really lasted for about a week. That it was. Uh, no one has helped me. No one. Some psychics have said, you know, if you pay me $5,000, I'll get rid of your curse. Yeah, well, of course, that's bullshit. My curse can't be. It's karmic. It's from a past life. You have to keep cleaning your karma. You have to work on it. And we have to for the next life. It's, you know, yoga and Tantra, or or I would suggest as a TantraWisdom.com teacher, that's my work. That is the path that you may not have really dived into. Because in Tantra, we work with, read about Deepak Chopra, read some of his books. And he's, even though he's a medical doctor, he still has that tantric background about karma. He reads, he writes a, a lot about consciousness and karma. I mean, you, you've had all this bad luck and all of these things, and it can only lead you to, to be down on yourself, right? I mean, you're down on yourself from all of this. No, no. I wrote a book because it's so, my story is so remarkable that I wrote a book. I've accepted it. I have remarkably bad karma with women. I've had it my whole life. I have it as of today. Uh, I was seeing this beautiful actress a couple months ago. We had two of the most romantic dates I ever had in my life. Right after that, her dog bit her. She had a bo- full body staph infection. Then her grandmother died of COVID. Then she got COVID. Then her house got flooded and, and she just moved to Florida. I'll never see her again. Oh, this was the one I thought, wow, this is going to be my next love. This so is know, this is a lot of darkness around you in your past. It's it's sixty six years and it's, it's it, there's no end. So so what do you what kind of advice do you give to people who who have these experiences of love and sex addiction and can't find the 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 uh, the road? Where where do they go? What do they do? What do you what kind of advice do you give to people? Or where are you going now in your journey? Well, I've accepted my fate. I'm 66. It's not my life's not going to change. So I, I live with it. But what I tell people with sex addiction. Now, I only had love addiction for this one girl with the long red hair. I was in love with her from afar. Uh, I know other people that have love addiction. I only had that with that one girl. I am a sex addict. I'm still I've slowed down because my sex drive is almost zero. My penis barely works. So I just read and exercise and play my drums and hang with my daughter. I just there's no, there's no. You go to um, those meetings, the twelve step sex addicts meetings. That what I, would, that's what I would say for advice. I went to SAA for two years. I learned a lot of things about sex addiction. Uh, there were lots and lots of men. On occasion, there'd be a woman, once in a blue moon, but mostly it was a lot of men who lost their wives, they lost access to their children, they lost their homes, they lost their jobs. They slept sleeping in their car. They couldn't stop masturbating. They couldn't stop having sex unprotected. Mm. Unprotected sex. Mm. They would get arrested. One one guy that was there was masturbating in the tree, looking at his neighbor, and he got arrested. He's imagine you're masturbating (laughs) and getting arrested. (laughs) Oh no! Bad enough you're in a tree. That'd be a good book. Tree sex. Tree tree masturbation so when i'm sitting there and i shared plenty and i got a lot off my chest it's the first time i ever spoke about sex with men that was interesting i've had a lot of a lot of therapists 
since the age of 40 have had a lot of therapy. Mm. All women, and this is funny, Anita, not so funny, my therapist, I have found the most beautiful therapist I could find. Why? Because then when I go home, I masturbate thinking about how beautiful my therapist is. I always pick beautiful. Fantasy and reality have always been split. They're still split. I don't care anymore. I've accepted my fate. But if you're a sex addict, go to SAA, share. It's going to be the hardest thing you ever do. Raise your hand, be truthful, spill your guts, because everyone in their story is going to be way worse than yours. And you'll find camaraderie. I went for two years. It helped me calm my, my mind down. And, and for the last 10 years, my, my all of my sex stuff has really calmed down a lot. I'm older now. I don't have money for call girls like I used to. My sex drive is almost zero. My penis is numb. I can barely feel it now. So logically, my 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 era of sexuality is, is in the wane part now. Have you ever had any other addictions? None of that. And sex, love, fantasy is one big addiction. And it's it's one big addiction, a split. But do you think that people can realistically? You don't have the worst luck on the planet Earth with women like I do. All you need to do is find one partner who accepts you, embraces you. All right, I'll give you another example. Two months ago, I had a date with a friend of Avis, as a matter of fact. We had a dinner date, a friend with Avis, very attractive. We had a great time. During the date, the topic of sex came up. I happened to say, you know, I was a sex addict in the past, Madeline, but it's been 10 years. I'm not. And she goes, you were, you were a sex addict? She goes, oh, my God, I can't date you. I can't have sex. I knew that was going to happen. I knew that was coming, that line. Why? She goes, I'm very conservative sexually. I'm not adventurous. You're, so, you're probably so much more experienced than me. And I have to be romantic and intimate and slow with sex. So, so I never saw her again. We had the one date and that was the end. I was trying to be honest, I, but I haven't been, I was I, trying to be honest. I, I, I find that um, sex addicts try to withhold if they're in therapy and they're going to the meetings, the 12 step meetings, the SLAA is what the one is called here in Philadelphia. Um, I find that they try to withhold from sex. They, they don't want to have the pleasure and they, they have to, create a certain amount of discipline not to have sex you know not to watch the porn not to do all the things that are they try to stay on that discipline path and that's good if they're really helping themselves and they have a sponsor and they really want to make a break from it and um, you know we always have to work at things whether whether you're trying to make a break there's never a break forever but working at it and finding a good place for it in your life where you can have normal healthy happiness in a normal healthy relationship so i find that some of the sex addicts they withhold they 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 try to they fight with themselves they're living in a lot of resistance what do you think about that well in saa you learn about the three circles you draw, you, everyone, you take a piece of paper and a pencil and you draw three circles. Your inner circle is your most destructive behaviors. So for me, it was call girls, lap dances, phone sex, mm. and black chefs. Then you brought the next outer one, outer circle. Behaviors that could lead to your bad behaviors, watching porn, um, girl watching, you know, going outside and looking at boobs and asses and then getting all excited, looking at sexy billboards. I used to drive around to look at sexy billboards of pretty girls and then use that in my, my fantasy life. And then your outer circle is things that you should do that are healthy. Exercise, read a book, go to dinner with friends, hang out with your children, which I love my daughter. We're very close. I see her all the time. Um, do things for yourself, go to the movies. So when I was in SAA, I, you know, and then another thing there is try to stop your most destructive behaviors. Well, there were guys in there that were masturbating eight times a day, eight times a day. Yes. Mm. So for them, if they could get down to a few times a week that, and they would share and then everyone would clap because they're like, well, okay, that's the recovery. Huge... That's the recovery. Having that recovery, uh, you know, yeah. applaud. Yeah. 
Yeah. Yeah. So, well, so, so, so really it takes a lot of discipline, a lot of discipline and a lot of support group. Is that what it takes or? I learned a lot from that. I, I, I calmed down my mind a lot. But again, I mean, it, it concurred with, it concurred with me getting older. Uh, I have low testosterone, by the way, which is another reason my sex drive is zero. Now, my doctor gave me testosterone injections. So if I want to get horny, this is so dumb, but I, for me to get horny, I have to take a testosterone injection. Then I can get horny. Then I can masturbate to porn. If I don't do those things, I have no sex job. I can't even masturbate anymore. So I have no advice to give anyone, except if you're a sex addict, join SAA. There's books. There's people to talk to. It worked for me for, for quite a while. It calmed me down. I was spending hundreds of thousands of dollars. So right. now, I, now I don't spend any. I, I don't have the money to, to do it anymore. So I'm going to say we have about five, you know, a few more moments to talk. I, I just want to say it's very interesting to hear your story. And I um, I really um, feel for you because I see in you a man that has a heart, a, a human being, and someone that could really uh, enjoy being loved by someone. And of course, having a nice normal sex life with one person. And I know you've come a long way, Dan. You 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 really took a, a, a long road here to get to where you are. And, and I commend you on the book, Carrots. It's a wonderful book to read, The True Confessions of a Hollywood Sex Addict, um, to to relate to your own story or to even reading the book, you can find out if you're a sex addict. Some people don't even know that they are. And that's the darkness of it and the ignorance that we don't talk about this enough in our world. I mean, it's always about drug or alcohol addiction, but sex addiction is very, very serious. And I did date a sex addict years ago in LA, and it was one of the I, loving and worst experiences of my dating life. It was just, I can't tell you after that, I said, I'll never go out. After that man that I went out with, I was younger, I was like 40. I said, I'm never going out with anyone who has any kind of addiction after that. It was just a, a, it was just a lot of something that was new to me as a person who didn't have addiction, you know, and to be in love with someone. So I want to say that I want, I wish you love. I want someone to come to you and find that beautiful heart that's sitting in your chest right now. Put your hand on your heart for me for a second, because you deserve love, Dan, right? Well, it's been 66 years. I don't expect it, but yeah, sure. It would be nice. Love and affection and intimacy, looking in someone's eyes and being connected, bonding. So tell us how we can find you and where we can find your book. This is Discover Joyce Love. I've been your host, Anita DeFrancesco, discoverjoyceLove.com. And Dan Harari is going to tell us where he, we can find him and to get his book. It's on Amazon now? or So my book is Carrots, uh, True Confessions of a Hollywood Sex Addict. My name is Dan Harari, H-A-R-A-R-Y. If you go to Google and put Carrots Dan Harari, H-A-R-A-R-Y, you'll find it on Amazon. Um, my author website, I have, this is, I have a, two more books coming out. I have four books altogether. What are the other books? What are they called? You have titles yet? First book is Flirting with Fame. It's the history of my Hollywood career of all the movie stars and celebrities I've worked with, plus when I worked with Bruce Springsteen and Kiss and stuff when I was in high school. So that's Flirting with Fame. It's What's the other book? Also on Amazon. My third book comes out in March. And that one I'm very excited about. It's an original science fiction novel. It's called After They Came. It's about two benevolent aliens who come to Earth to save mankind and cure, cure all of mankind's problems, working through a 60-year-old Porsche love loser who was about to kill him, who's, a, who's trying to commit suicide. They save his life. They make him the hero of the Earth. And it, it's it's the best thing I have ever written. It's, it's, I'm so we'll have to talk, you'll have to come back on the show and we'll talk about that book. So... I'm into, I'm into aliens and UFOs and all. I've seen three UFOs with my own eyes. I've been studying it for 30 years. It's all true. The aliens and UFOs are real. You don't know. My fourth book, my fourth book comes out in 2024. 
It's called Inside the Cutting Room. And it's my best friend, lifelong best friend. He has a very famous nightclub in Manhattan called The Cutting Room. It's where Lady Gaga was discovered. And uh, every famous rock star and pop star. In New York. That's in New York, right? Yeah. In New York. My best friend, lifelong best friend from the age of 12. Not the one that molested me. This is a different friend. (laughs) That's called Inside the Cutting Room. That's be my fourth. Well, we'll have to have you back on the show, Discover Joy's Love, and we're going to come to a close now, and we'll interview you about the other books. Carrots, True Confessions of a Hollywood Sex Addict, written by author Dan Harari, and you can get that on Amazon. Go to his website, danhararariauthor.com. And I want to thank everyone for tuning in, listening to the show. I've been your host, Anita DiFrancesco, Discover Joy's Love. Thank you.